and welcome to our Zurich Risk Insights podcast series. And this series is all about climate change. I'm your host, Rasheen Geraghty. And in this episode, I'm talking with Amar Rachman, our Risk Engineering Global Practice Leader in Natural Hazards and Climate Change, and Belinda Bates, Senior Climate Risk Change Consultant. We're talking about how organisations can build a climate resilience strategy. Amar and Belinda, thank you so much for joining us. Hi. Hi, thanks for having me. Fantastic. So let's start with why organisations need to be thinking about adaptation to climate change. Well, organisations should be treating climate change as a priority and not as something in the distant future. I mean, we're seeing this every day in the news where wildfires, floods, droughts, and so on are impacting every corner of the globe. Not only companies, but individuals, organizations, and governments need to act collectively and accept changes to solve the problems we're facing. Development and implementing these solutions take time, which is why we have to act sooner rather than later. Thanks, Amar. So, Belinda, what are some of the physical impacts we might see on our infrastructure in the UK? Yeah, so the impact of the so-called acute risks is obvious. So that's how floods uh, and windstorms, for example, are impacting physical assets. But there are also what's called the chronic effects of climate change. And this is, as an example, less electricity can be transmitted over power lines when the average temperatures are increasing. And that's when power is needed most for air conditioning, refrigeration, and so on. Another chronic risk, sea level rise, will affect the quality of water in inland water bodies, and that affects the performance of water treatment plants. The cycles of intense rainfall followed by drought increases subsidence or ground settlement, and that increases the risk of breakage of buried pipes and power lines. So the reliability of all of our infrastructure is affected, and it will necessitate increased maintenance. Such effort effects will not impact all communities equally. So you could have a potential migration of the population from highly affected areas to regions that aren't as badly affected. So what is a climate resilience adaptation strategy? Put it simply, it's it's a three-step approach. You could apply it at a company level. That means if you have like 50 or 100 locations spread out geographically all over the country or all over the globe, Or you could apply it in a single building where you have different processes, machines, and so on. Process, resilience adaptation strategy process should involve as many functions in an an organization as possible. That's very important because everyone, each individual and each unit has a different definition of criticality or the pain points that could affect an organization. Okay, so what's the first step? Well, the first step is defining what are your pain points? What, what can hurt you as an organization? What equipment, what stock, what even what, who are the critical people that you need to keep your operations going? Once you've identified these pain points, you need to understand what are the broad business and strategic risks around these critical pain points. Where are your vulnerabilities and to what kind of hazards or risk triggers are you exposed? Yeah, then what you would want to do after that is to develop a granular view of the risks involved. So that typically involves the modeling of both physical and transition risk impacts. So physical being obviously the physical and transition, which are those risks that are related to adjustment to a low carbon economy. So that includes, for example, looking at individual locations or specific business activities, and that includes both products and services. And then those first two steps, they can be applied at company center level or at process or production line level at a location. And then finally, you would want to develop a mitigation strategy involving insurance and developing resilience strategies, either through physical risk adaptation or perhaps even changing business models and activities to address those transition risks. Okay, 
nice and complex. So can you give us an example of a broad risk that organizations might need to identify? So some of the issues that you need to consider if you have a cluster of locations in a region that's potentially impacted by a single event, for example, a flood, who are your key suppliers and where are they located? What is your key infrastructure? Is it power? Is it water? Do you have enough redundancy? Because when we talk about key suppliers and and infrastructure, it means that they're situated away from where you are. You probably don't know where your suppliers are situated or where the water treatment plant is. If your facility is not directly impacted, those could be impacted by a flood. It still means that your operations are going to stop. Okay, so once you've identified these broad risk areas, what is the next step? Well, once you've identified where your critical pain points are and what your key operations are, you go down to another level of granularity. You need to understand where are your key locations, what are the magnitudes of the risks at those locations in terms of the financial impact of an event, how many people could be affected by your by your shutdown, what is the potential reputational risk, the loss of customers if you stop producing uh, over a long period of time. And then you need to prioritize these locations and these operations. One example could be that you have what seems to be a minor warehouse or a supplier that you have not identified as being critical, but actually supplies you with key components. This small warehouse or this minor supplier is actually providing you with very critical components for a product that generates a high revenue. Linda, what are the challenges with trying to understand these granular risks? Yeah, so we tend to rely heavily on historical evidence, and that's either through our own experiences or through hazard maps or any other historical-based data. But the rapid changes in the environment in terms of event frequency and intensity aren't reflected in historical data. So that's why we should treat these tools with caution and take a conservative approach in our risk assessments. And there's another challenge, which is the complexity and interconnection between the consequences consequences of an event. So for example, a flooding event inside a production facility triggered by lightning, which resulted in loss of power at a pumping station during an intense windstorm event. So there's lots of factors there. So what can organizations do to overcome this? So we have to accept the imperfection of the tools and use them with that in mind. So one way to do this is by implementing a scenario-based approach. And you have to be conservative in interpreting the output and most importantly, check the data quality used in the analyses. One of the most common sources of error in natural hazards and climate change assessments is poor location data. So that's, in other words, wrong addresses. And another important aspect of data quality relates to understanding the details of operations. So to avoid that experience and judgment of local teams plays a really important role. And we recommend prioritizing critical locations. And critical could mean a lot of things. So that could mean locations with a high concentration of value, specialist equipment that has long replacement times, a large population or highly concentrated population nearby, or multiple locations that could be impacted by one single event. So the final step is mitigation. How can organizations start to mitigate these risks that they've identified? You need to consider a range of options, right? From physical through management protection mechanisms to risk transfer solutions like insurance. Don't rely only 
on one form of protection. You need to balance the investments that you require with the potential long and not only short-term consequences. It's a typical cost-benefit analysis, but don't look only in the short term, see how this event could impact you in the long term. You need to work with your neighbors, so the communities nearby, the local authorities, even local uh, production facilities in your neighborhood. The reason why you need to, to work all together collectively is that you, you have to look at the vulnerabilities that are outside your own control. For example, you need to look at infrastructure resilience, community emergency response plan. It doesn't help if you have a resilient facility, but your staff can't get to your site. You mentioned insurers. How involved would insurers be in this process? Typically, insurers have the data, the knowledge and resources to create an ecosystem of solution providers. After all, what we do is, is quantify risk. So we know we're very good at that. Considering the scale of the problem, that's climate change, every stage of the solution scoping process requires involvement of society, governments, academia, industry, and so on. Insurers also have an important role to play in educating their customers and societies in which we operate in, not only from the scope of the problem, but also the solutions that may be required. So just an example, Zurich regularly publishes a wide range of documents, all accessible on our website, for a wide audience ranging from corporate risk managers to the general public. And what about for smaller organisations where they may have limited capacity or budget for risk management? How can they approach this problem and how can the answers be scaled? So in addition to documents I mentioned, we've developed apps that support smaller organisations in assessment of various risks. Just as an example, the Zurich Risk Advisor app available for download for free that contains a suite of different tools that allow anyone to assess different risks, whether we're talking about liability, flood, earthquake, and so on. So throughout these podcasts, we've established that there's a lot of work for organizations and governments to do to curb carbon emissions and tackle climate change, but everyone can help in their own way. So what's one thing that you are both doing in your households to live more sustainably? So for the last couple of years, I've been trying to buy much more secondhand. So that's mostly clothes and I found some great shops, but also household things like furniture. And actually, while that's more sustainable, I now even find shopping more fun because you never know what you're going to find. What about you, Amar? We actually live in a very rural part of Switzerland. We've got a lot of farmers around where we live. So we're buying our vegetables and our eggs from the local community. So coming to what Belinda said about finding surprises in what you buy, our apples are not quite vegetarian. Got a lot of worms in some of them, so but it's it's fun. <laughs> it's a surprise edition of protein. Amar and Belinda, thank you so much for being part of our podcast series. We hope you have enjoyed listening to this episode. For more information about climate risks, check out our other episodes in this series and look on our website and content hubs for the documents that Amar has mentioned. Mm-hmm.